Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 67, Video Contracts with Justin Blunt. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks guys for listening to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. If you are new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. On this podcast, we talk about all things video, um, video related business topics. We talk about editing. We talk about all things video. And we also have an accompanying uh, Facebook group called the Filming with Josh group on Facebook. If you just go to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh, you will see um, a group of about 700 something members where we have different conversations all about video, teaching video, um, asking questions about video. So if you want to learn more about video, go to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh and ask to join the group today. On today's episode, I am welcoming my friend and former professor, Justin Blunt to the podcast. Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing great. So Justin was my B-Law professor back in college at Stephen F. Austin State University. And I remember after having your class, it was my favorite class I ever, well, tied for my favorite class. My other favorite class was whitetail management because I love deer. (laughs) But it was tied for my favorite class in particular because of the cases we went over. It always stuck with me, like the McDonald's coffee case. I I talk about that one all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I remember after after having your class, we formed a relationship where you kind of helped me as I was starting my business. And you've been working with me ever since, helping me with contracts and whatnot. And uh, you've been a huge part of my business. So I want to say thank you for everything thing you've done for me. And, and I want to thank you for joining the podcast today. Um, for those of you listening, Justin is a professor of business law at SFA, and he's also a licensed attorney in the state of Texas and Oklahoma. But Justin, what I want to do is just ask you a little bit about you, where you're from, um, what your background is, where you went to school and what you do today. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in rural Oklahoma, a little town called Carnegie, Oklahoma, where I'd be shocked if any of your listeners have any idea where it's at. So down in the southwest corner of the state, wheat farming community, uh, around a thousand people. Um, So, you know, very much. And I still have an affinity for rural areas, um, folks that grow up there, you know, love living there, enjoy living in the small town I do now in Nacogdoches. So from there, I went to Southwestern Oklahoma State, uh, which is just kind of the local university that most people go there. And then, you know, had nobody in my family has been a lawyer, just kind of stumbled into law school based upon a professor who told me they thought I'd be good at it. So ended up at uh, Baylor Law School down here in Texas, graduated from there longer ago than I want to admit. I guess it's 2005. So quite a while back. Um, practiced law in Waco for quite a while. Um, so I did complex contract drafting work and regulatory work for a, a financial services company called Life Partners Incorporated and got my MBA from the University of Texas while I was doing that. And I didn't know you had an MBA. Yes. Yeah. I have an MBA as well. Yeah. My undergrad degree is in finance and then have an, an MBA also. So I have a real um, affinity for just very practical business law things. I enjoy working with business people and um Folks, I tell students all the time, people that do real stuff that have to make actual real decisions, unlike <laughs> me who get to, you know, just sit and talk about these things all the time now. Um, but decided I wanted to go into academia, was uh, fortunate to find this job in Nacogdoches and have been here for about 10 years now at SFA. So now that you're teaching at SFA, do you, if you, SFA was to play Baylor, who would you go for? 
Oh, probably, probably Baylor, just because they would probably win. <laughs> probably, that's true. Yeah, but I, I'll be the first to admit, I probably wouldn't care a whole lot either way. I'm one of those that somehow managed to grow up in this part of the world and care very little about organized sports. <laughs> that's so I like funny. going to sporting events because I like hanging out with people, but the results have never been anything I care much about. <laughs> that's really funny. I just had to sneak that in there and ask that. Yeah. So at SFA, what type of classes do you teach? So I teach business law, and then I also teach a course on business ethics, uh, which I really enjoy teaching. And then I teach a couple of electives. One is a, a graduate course in negotiations, where we just kind of practice the skill and art of negotiating uh, contracts and other situations. And then I teach an elective in employment law. Okay. I would have loved to have had your negotiations class. That would have been a neat class. Yeah, it's pretty fun to teach. I mean, it's a very practical hands-on. We just do a ton of negotiating exercises. Really practical course. Oh, man, that's awesome. My um, my my mom teaches a business ethics class. Um, I didn't realize you taught that, but she does as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she really enjoys that class. It is. It's, it's fun to teach. It's interesting. I've been doing it for about 10 years now just to kind of see where people's views on different ethical situations change throughout time. You kind of get to see culture changing. It's interesting. And you still teach, you're, so you teach full-time, but you still practice law on the side. I do. Yeah. And you've been doing contract work for me, I think since literally, I, I believe we started doing stuff together when I was in college. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, it was pretty early on when you started doing your filming. Yeah. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, but I got offered a job to work full time for a TV show, but I hadn't graduated yet. Yep. And I had this huge, <laughs> this huge like decision I had to make. Do I leave college right before I graduate and go take this job or do I turn down the job and stay? And I never, I'll never forget this. You may not even remember you told me this, but you told me that I was young and single and that I could always come back and finish college, but what if I never got the job opportunity again? And so mm -hmm. I left and took it and I'm really glad I did. So it worked out. Yeah, I, I do remember that. And, I, and I've had similar conversations with other students where I, I think they're usually surprised when I say that, but I, I was surprised. I, I, yeah. I think some of that betrays my, you know, kind of more working class background of, man, I know plenty of super sharp, productive people who didn't go to college, right? And especially in the modern world where you can learn so much stuff online, like, yeah, I mean, we've made it easier to go back to college as an adult. There's online classes now, but um, man, learning through doing things and when opportunities like that present themselves, you know, I think there's a lot of good arguments for like, hey, let's let's do this while we have a chance. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad I did do that. And I still might finish college one day online, but taking that path. I mean, I would not have been here today had I not have done it. Yeah. 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 And maybe I would have been somewhere better. I don't know, but it worked out. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but my, my favorite thing about working with you is, is you're really approachable. Sometimes I feel like people in my position, my position, meaning just small business owners feel like when we hear attorney or lawyer, it sounds scary and intimidating. Um, yeah. and I think the fact that you're so approachable is my favorite thing about working with you because you're not afraid to answer questions or to help me out. Um, and I think, I, I think people, more people need that because sometimes like contracts and stuff are scary to navigate on your own, but mm -hmm. you're also afraid to call because you don't know, are they like, how's the person going to talk to you? Is it going to cost you $20,000 just to, right. just to, to, to have a question answered. And I think that the way that you conduct your business is just, I don't know, it makes you very approachable and it makes it a very appeasing for people like me. Well, I appreciate that. And and I think the reason people do feel that way is because it's a well-deserved reputation from the law field, uh, because I think there are too many lawyers who 
are not approachable, you're worried because they probably will are just like setting a timer the instant you talk to them and billing you by the hour. Um, and so I did general counsel work. So we paid outside law firms and that was a huge issue we had. And it's very unpleasant to have to frequently get on calls with your attorney and argue with them over how much they're billing you for stuff. Um, but that's just kind of the nature of it. So yeah, again, I think being a small town guy, I always gravitated towards, and it's part of why I even went to law school. I view law as a service profession where, you know, you're part of the community. People need legal help on things. Of course, you're there to make a living uh, and everybody should understand that, but that doesn't mean you have to be exploitative about it. Um, and yeah, make it where your clients are scared to call you about something basic. Um, and in all fairness, I have that luxury because I have another income, right? So sure, I, I'm, exactly. I'm sympathetic to law firms where, you know, we have this perception that all lawyers are making a ton of money. And there are some that are making tons of money, but there are also a lot of, you know, one, two, three person firms that are kind of barely making ends meet. And, you know, they have a receptionist to pay and a light bill to pay. Sure. So, um, you know, that there's that aspect of it that I get, but I, I think you're right. I think people are scared to call attorneys, um, but but I think there, there's a good reason why sometimes <laughs> they are. If you find a good one, they're worth their weight in gold to hang on to. I do feel like, so I the business owner part of me does understand that last point you made as well. Like I'm totally fine to pay anybody for, for legal help because you sure. went to school, you learned how to do all that. You started a practice, you have an office. Like I'm happy to pay for all of those things. And I just feel like if more attorneys were approachable, you'd get mm -hmm. more business from smaller smaller companies that would still be happy to, to pay for their help, but just be being approachable to begin with, I think it's just such a huge thing. Right, yeah, no, I think that's true. Well, what I wanna do today is a lot of people listening to this podcast, we've got listeners all over the world, but I know that what we talked about today, some of it will probably only make sense here in the United States because we know our law, but we don't mm -hmm. know law in, uh, in in other countries necessarily. But what I want to do today is I a lot of a lot of our listeners don't know where to start with video contracts. Should we have a contract? What's the point of a contract? What's wrong with just having a handshake? Um, and I know when I got started, I did the whole handshake thing and it got me into some major pickles. Um, mm -hmm. I even had uh, one of the first times I called you after I left college was because I had done a handshake with a rather large company about who was going to have own ownership of the video rights uh, for the raw content. And even though they agreed that it was mine, uh, I got an a letter from their attorney threatening to sue me if I didn't give them the raw footage, even though we shook a hand on it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was like the first time I ever realized, man, you got to have everything spelled out. And so what I want to do today is first, I want to start by talking about why is it important that even small, vid even freelance videographers, why is it important that people in, in my business have have contracts. I'll let you start. Yeah. So, you know, I think one place that, and I discuss this a lot with students and, and people in their everyday lives where they'll say, and I'll say this too, it's just kind of a quirk of English, but it's not legally accurate. Like, well, we didn't have a contract. Well, in the legal sense, you, you do, right? So like oral contracts are contracts. So a handshake deal is a contract. It's a legally enforceable agreement um, that you can sue over in court. The problem is it's a really vague contract. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of things that haven't been thought of that you haven't spelled out. Like you mentioned, maybe video ownership rights, um, dates of when performance has to be by. What do we do if the performance isn't good enough? 
So the more complex the relationship, the more things there are to spell out. Um, and yeah, I would submit the field that you're in. And we found this as we iteratively, you know, change things in your, in your contracts. I think because you guys are in it every day, you don't think about it as being that complex because it's just like, okay, they're giving me money. I'm going to show up and video something, but it really is complex. So like the situation you're speaking of, and, and, and I have no idea, but it's very possible that they didn't really understand what raw footage means and ownership of that means. And so it's not that they are trying to go back on a handshake deal. It's a genuine misunderstanding of we were talking about two different things that that happens all the time because intellectual property rights can get complex. And so, um, you know, my pitch when I talk to people about why having a written contract matters is memories are not very good. Um, English, you know, orally is a contextual language and we can give different meanings to different things. And th there's just a lot of opportunity for confusion that can end up, um, this sounds counterintuitive to people, but it's true, end up destroying trust and destroying a relationship because we think the other side's being dishonest when the reality is there's just genuine confusion over what we agreed to. And you may think we agreed to X, I think we agreed to Y, neither of our memories are completely accurate, um, but we're still fighting over it. Whereas if we have it in writing and we just spell out now and, and try to cover everything that might possibly happen, then we have a shared basis of reality from which to figure out how this relationship is going to go forward. Uh, so written contracts are just, to my mind, really important for that in a complex world where there's a lot of misunderstanding that can take place. Yeah, I think my my favorite thing I tell people, my favorite expression is I, I like to tell people that video, or excuse me, not video, that contracts preserve relationships. Um, yeah. I, I'm a huge believer of that because like mm -hmm. the customer I just explained a minute ago, if I would have had a contract to begin with, I could have just pointed to the contract and been like, well, you know, you, you agreed to this. And I, I can't guarantee that they wouldn't be upset, but I know there's a far better chance that they would not be upset because they could look at that and be like, oh, well, I did agree to that. Yeah. And then we could come to some sort of an agreement, you know, afterward, and I'd be happy to figure something out to keep them happy. But we never even got to that point because there was no contract. So I right. think that contracts preserve relationships, even if it's you're doing something for your best friend, just mm -hmm. spell it out. And and I think you, you and I mentioned this uh, off podcast earlier, you had made the comment that um, sometimes people feel like if you have a contract with a client, it means you don't trust each other. Yeah. And I don't think that's, I, I, I understand that thought process because that's why I didn't used to do contracts, but I, I actually think that more people actually appreciate that you want to do it than, than they think that you don't trust them. Yeah, I think that's true. I've had a few rare situations in my life where somebody said, well, I just do think, do things on a handshake. Do you not trust me? But I've always been able to explain, and they're satisfied with it, with, that this has nothing to do with me not trusting you. In fact, if I didn't trust you, I wouldn't deal with you even if we have a written contract, right? I'm not going to, to do a deal with somebody I don't trust. What I don't trust is the perfection of our memories, um, our ability to think about everything we need to address right now orally through a handshake. And that goes for you as well as for me. So, you know, I want our, I want us to know exactly what it is we agree to. And I think you're right. That preserves relationships. It gives us shared understanding. If you think about it from a personal standpoint, how many of us in personal relationships have the reason it breaks down is an argument that we had had a while back and we both have different recollections about what happened, but we're both 100% convinced that we are right. 
where like if, if somebody had videoed it at that time and we could both view the video <laughs> and know what actually happened, the relationship probably wouldn't be fractured. We would both look at it and say, yeah, we were both being idiots and, and you're right. We don't need to fight over this. So, yeah, it, you, I think you're absolutely right. It's very much a relationship preserving thing. It's just a recognition that we need to sit down and make sure we think through the parameters of what both of us are doing uh, before we get. Yeah, into it. I, I totally agree. And I love I love the way you described it as. Uh, a memory thing too, like our memories are terrible. I, yeah. I have never even thought about ex- using that as a as a mm-hmm. way to explain it. Um, you know, I what, definitely. Good. Okay. Well, what's interesting to me though, just thinking of this the other day, you and I don't have a written contract. Um, oh, and, yeah, you know, right. Yeah, I've, I've done legal work for you, and, <laughs> and that's very intentional. A, a reason why I haven't huh. is because one, I do trust you, and two, it's a very low stakes. Um, relationship sure. as far as monetarily. So like I've never, there's never been a legal bill where the things I'm doing for you is like 10,000 bucks uh, right. where it's like super complex. It's always been right. relatively small amounts. We're talking about it. We figure out what it is. So I'm not saying every single business relationship has to be in writing. You know, again, the, we do oral stuff all the time. Um, what I am saying is if it's something you're willing to not get paid on, um, you know, so it's one of the, the the amounts. And again, I do always trust you to pay me, but the amounts we're dealing with are always so small that if you're like, um, you know, I think that's a bit much or no, that's not what I understand. We agreed to. I would be more than willing to say, oh, that's fine. Don't pay me. And I wouldn't be mad about it. Now, if, if there was something I was doing for you that was going to be complex and it's probably going to be a five to ten thousand dollar legal bill. I would enter into a legal um, engagement agreement with you that kind of spells out exactly the parameters of what I'm doing, how many hours I'm going to spend and how much I'm going to get paid per hour, because then the stakes are higher. So, um, yeah, again, I'm a small town guy. I don't want to make it sound like everything in our life has to be in writing. It's just when we're getting to those important business relationships, you know, potential ongoing client, large amounts of money at stake. That's where those details really matter. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I I feel like I feel like that may that I, I can totally agree with that because like yesterday I did a shoot for a, a rather large construction company um, as a freelance job as a one-off shoot they have an in-house editor like I'm literally just shooting for for five hours for them I did not get them to sign a contract they called me and asked if I could come do this job and like you said if if they turn around and were like hey we're not gonna pay you I would be like disappointed but it's not like life-altering. It's yeah. not a huge deal to me. And so I, so I, for this particular client in this situation, I didn't feel like it was worth it for us to have to go through all that trouble. That mm-hmm. being said, if they called me back and like, hey, we love your work. We want to do you know a brand video for our business and it's going to be a $5,000 or $10,000 project. That would be a totally different story. And it would be more complex because now I'm not just shooting. I'm script writing. I'm hiring voice actors. There's a lot more going on at that point. Right. And so I yeah. do agree. I do totally agree with that, that I think like if someone's just going to go do an odd job for someone, we're not saying that you have to have a contract for that. Mm-hmm. But it's I love the way you put it. It comes down to like, what can you live without? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when one of the next questions I would have then is, first off, how does someone get started getting a contract? Should they just go online and Google general video contracts? Yeah, as, as simplistic as it sounds, uh, that is probably what I would do first. Now, that's not where I would end up, but, but I do think one thing that's going to um, save you money as well as end up in higher quality work 
um, if you do end up engaging an attorney to do this, is to educate yourself first. Um, and if you are experienced in your area, and I've definitely found this with you, um, I think people get more overwhelmed with contracts than they should. Um, so usually if you go Google, you can find a lot of different form contracts for like video contracts and look at them, you know, sit down and diligently read them. Most of it you're going to understand. There's going to be a few kind of boilerplate in, things in there that are kind of confusing. You know, you can highlight those, circle them. But if you read through something like that and it feels like something that you would like, that this makes sense to you and I could use it, um, that probably doesn't mean you should just use that document. You do want it kind of vetted by somebody that knows what they're doing. But if you can take that in to an attorney and say, I want something kind of like this. Now, here are a few things unique to my business that I think need to be addressed here. That's going to give the attorney, you know, background of what they need to do. They'll understand you're an informed client. I think you're going to have a better working relationship. So I think that's a really good place to start. Um, you could probably YouTube. I mean, the modern information age is great. YouTube some you know, videos of attorneys kind of explaining the sorts of things you might need in a video contract. There's probably some good videos out there that would at least give you some good background. So you're going in as a knowledgeable client. And don't like, I, I could be wrong about this, but I would imagine if someone was to Google a general video contract, take the time to go through it, like you said, highlight some things um, and just kind of be prepared. If they go in with that, to an attorney, they're likely to save themselves a little bit of money, wouldn't they? Rather than just telling a journey attorney, hey, I need a video contract. I have no idea where to start, but make me one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think you will save yourself some money. You're going to be um, more likely to get back kind of on the first draft of whatever that attorney puts together, something that, that matches what it is that you're looking for. Yeah, it, it is. I think that legwork saves you some money. I would imagine because it, you're you're saving them a lot of time too because mm -hmm. they don't. I mean, you're you're basically if you start they're starting from scratch, like they're having to do all the research and stuff that you could save a lot them a lot of time on. Yeah, yeah, and and there's a um, and you and I have gone through this process a lot. You want to find a, an attorney that's humble enough that, that will admit, and you got to feel this out in discussions with them that they don't know everything. Attorneys can be like doctors. Some of them, you know, like if you walk in and this guy acts like he just knows everything, that was always an indicator to me when we were hiring counsel, turn around and run because nobody can know everything. Yeah. Um, what I want is a smart person that can figure things out and is humble enough to know what he doesn't know or she doesn't know. Um, so yeah, like there's been a lot of stuff in our contracts that I kind of, I listen to you, you know, take some notes. I sketch some things out, but then I'm always putting comments in there like, hey, this may make no sense for your industry. This needs to be readable and make sense. So if I'm using terminology here that's silly, that somebody in video editing is going to look at and be like, what's this crazy person talking about? <laughs> Change it. Um, because, you know, any industry has terms of art. Um, you know, there are terms that you might use that I don't know. I have to go look up. And so that's where, you know, the client knowledge, a, a contract needs to read commonsensically for that uh, industry so people can understand it. That client knowledge matters. And you want an attorney that's willing to listen to that and understands that. Yeah, like even in my even in my profession, like when I when I do work for, for example, the geospatial engineering firm, 
I don't understand their technology or their business. I know nothing yeah. about what they do. So I have mm-hmm. to I have to learn and research and ask some questions because it's the only way I could possibly know how to capture and, and show what it is that they're trying, what it is their business does. And so in, and for an attorney, it's gotta be the same way. I mean, you don't most attorneys don't know anything about video. Yeah. And it's not a knock against them. They just have to mm-hmm. learn what's in that involved in that business. But what's cool about when you develop a relationship like the relationship I have with you. <clears throat> and, and anyone who's listening to this contract who has a, who might seem like their contract's constantly getting longer, I think that's really normal because, like for us, mm-hmm. I because we we've maintained this relationship. I'm always every year contacting you throughout the year about random stuff I run into that I never yeah. would have thought of, and so my contract mm-hmm. gets longer and longer and longer. But you know my business pretty well now because yeah. we've maintained this relationship, and so you're quickly able to help me figure out. Mm-hmm. All right, we should add this clause, and here's why. Yeah. And so I think finding someone too that you can build a relationship with, I think, is really important. Yeah, and there's some things we found that you've come across, and we talk through and decide that you know that occurrence is going to be so rare. And it's going to be so hard to spell out in a contract how to even handle it in a satisfactory way. We're probably better off leaving it out. Uh, it might turn off more clients than it helps. It's going to be confusing and, and hard to handle anyway. So, yeah, if you can develop a relationship with somebody where they know your business, kind of have a little bit of a, an understanding of who your client base is and the types of problems that might arise, um, that's when it gets really useful. Yeah, I totally agree. One. Um, what, another question I want to ask you, and, and this is one of the first questions I have in my list, is uh, what makes a contract binding? So when someone develops a contract, what what it, what is it? Is it just the signature that makes it binding? Like what makes it binding? Yeah, so that's a great question. What makes it binding is that both parties have agreed to it. Um, and that does not have to mean a signature. Although if you have a written document without a signature, it's going to be hard to convince a court that they had agreed to it. But um, so like you mentioned, a handshake deal. So like a handshake is a commonly understood, um, what we say in the law, manifestation of assent. So both parties have to say, yes, I agree to be bound to this contract or in some way through their actions indicate that they're bound to the contract. Sometimes that's as simple as one party has been performing and the other party's paying. Right. So there's been there's contract dispute cases where one party's been paying for something for a while. They have a dispute. Then one party argues, hey, we never had a contract. Like, well, why were you paying them then? Why were they doing stuff for you and you were paying? So clearly we at least had some contracts. Now we may have an issue over performance. So, yeah, ideally, you know, you want it signed. But, you know, let's say you and I negotiate a written contract. We neither of us end up signing it. We kind of forget that it's in writing, but we end up kind of doing a handshake deal and then we start performing and then we have a dispute. We're still going to have a contract. Then the question is going to be how many of those terms in that written contract reflect what we actually agreed to. And then we're going to be testifying a lot as to, well, no, Josh said he wanted that in the contract, but I disagreed and that's why we didn't sign it. And maybe a jury believes you or not. So what the signatures are really important for and making sure we both have a shared agreement that this written document is the final contract is then the court will go by that. Then if you try to testify to something outside of that contract, the court's going to say, nope, not going to let you testify to that. We have a written agreement. That's what we're going by. So it, it's binding once both parties agree. Um, if if someone like me sends out a contract and it only has one signature and it's for the client, mm-hmm. does the client, if he's, if the client signs it, the client obviously agrees to it, but if yes. if I did not send it or sign it, I just sent it. 
does it is it still binding even though it doesn't have my signature on it because I was the sender? Yes, yeah, it's still binding. We might have a little bit of a dispute as to exactly whether you agreed all of those terms or not. What that'll really come down to is who sues. So like uh. if you sue them um, and then you're arguing over provision and they're saying, no, I never agreed to that provision, you can say, well, yeah, you did, you signed right here. Now, if they sue you, um, and then you try to argue that, well, no, that provision I actually didn't agree to. The reason I didn't sign is we never came to an agreement on that. Mm, then good we're going to have it. So it kind of depends upon what we're arguing over and yep. who's suing who. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I I also, I, I don't I mean, this may be a little off topic, but I know like on my contract, to make it go even further, mine are digital, but mine even like they lock the contract as soon as both parties sign and it like time stamps it and automatically and it even puts i think the ip address of like mm -hmm. the signer's computer do you think that's valuable to have those things yes it is yeah and, and that's a great point with electronic contracts um don't misunderstand what we mean by signature a signature doesn't have to be pen and ink written down it's any um you know physical manifestation of assent to that document so electronic signatures are fine um, yeah, like click boxes where they say I accept and then it puts in a digital signature or something. But um, definitely what you do want are those things you talked about that it's locked down, that no further modifications can be made, that by the time both of us have assented to it, it is very clear which draft we've assented to, um, that we know what the final document is. Because that can happen if we keep going back and forth in a negotiation and things get modified. And it's happened to me in practice back when I did really complex contract drafting. If you don't version everything and if you don't make it really clear which contract is actually the final written contract, you can have one party saying, no, this this version three that we sent via email here, here's what we agreed to. And another saying like, no, it's, it's this other one that was sent later. And you can get a lot of disputes as to exactly which contract was the final contract. So best practices, you want to make it really clear and like the lockdown functions you have help with that, that you know, there's there's no dispute. It's impossible for any document other than this document here to be the final thing that we agreed to. That makes perfect sense. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that if someone's doing a contract with a client, should they get a contract for every single project? Or should they have like uh, one contract and then if the client wants to add to that or do uh, extra projects, would would the first contract be enough to to spell out the terms? Like if it ever went to court, could the court say, look, you may not have a, 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 had a contract for this additional project, but the client obviously did agree that over previously over this ownership or that they would pay for these expenses, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. The um, So the answer is the ideal way to do it would be have so it doesn't have to be a completely new contract and you and i have worked on this um it, it can be an email or it can be a standard kind of short document that you have that expressly says i've agreed to this new we, or we've agreed to this new project all of the previous terms in our original contract are incorporated herein and we expressly agree that those apply that's the best way to do it because then we don't have a dispute regarding um, whether this new performance is supposed to be under the terms of the old contract now, um, if that doesn't happen, yes, um, that previous contract is going to be strong evidence that this represents what our contractual relationship is supposed to be, but it's not going to be dispositive. Um, that they could still testify that, no, we agreed to that for that, but Josh and I had other discussions where we realized this project was different and I wasn't going to pay him for expenses there. And so there's still an opportunity for disputes. 
Um, so I think best practice is to make sure it's clear that you're, and you can do it more simply that you are, you know, kind of a quick one page document we're referencing back. Yes, all of this is incorporated. Or again, you can even do that through email. That's not quite as good, but at least it gives you some written documentation. Um, now I would say if, if the new performance is just dramatically different, such sure. that we do need to kind of spell out some different terms, that's when we would say, well, let's do a new contract because this project's quite a bit different. But as long as the the old contract makes sense to cover these new performances, I think a quick and easy one pager is is probably the best way to handle that. Yeah, I actually <clears throat> we ran into this not that long ago because you did develop a one page document mm-hmm. for me because I have a lot of clients that want to do can like continuously do do projects. And for for me, it makes a lot of sense to just have like a one document for them to sign that references yeah. everything that we've done previously. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's like a quick a quick item that someone could um, could have developed that I think would be a really useful tool. Yeah. And, and then you can keep them that those can be simple enough. You can keep them printed out and have a stack of them there. So if you're like, you know, on a site and there's something extra they want, you can pull one out. Um, and the other thing to understand, this is a good time to mention this. A contract doesn't have to be pretty. I mean, so if there's something in that little one pager that doesn't make sense, there's no problem with the parties there on the spot scratching out language. Um, ideally, you want to then initial it to show that you both agreed that you're going to change it, change that thing in pen, sign it. That's fine. Um, we are not. This is, I think, a big misunderstanding a lot of lay people have is we're not picky about what a writing is in a contract. Something scribbled on a cocktail napkin at a bar, <laughs> if it has enough detail and we can read the scribbles, that can be a written contract. Um, and th- this was shocking to me when I began practicing was in law school that like a lot of times this happens in a courtroom where we're reaching a settlement. The parties don't have a computer and a printer and stuff sitting there. I mean, it can be huge cases where we decide we don't want to go to a jury trial, so we want to settle it quickly. And one of the lawyers scrawls out on a notepad a real quick settlement <laughs> agreement, and they both sign it because they're worried about what that jury's going to do. Um, and that's a completely valid settlement agreement, even if it's for $2 billion. Um, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be pretty and fancy. It just has to be clearly you know, set out the terms and, and be executed. How do you define – like how do you know – if someone's an authorized signer, I know we ran into this last year where we yeah. had a client sign. They had someone sign a contract, but come to find out uh, we, we, we still did the project and everything worked out, but we realized like that person probably didn't have the authority to sign that. Yeah, that that's a difficult question. So to give your listeners <clears throat> a little bit of a background, what, what Josh means by an authorized signer is like, if you're dealing with a corporation, if it's Boeing, Right. Boeing's not some person walking around that can pick up a pen and sign a thing. So Boeing acts under agents that, that have authorized. So like if it's the CEO, clearly they have authority to sign that contract on your behalf. If it's, you know, <clears throat> vice president of such and such affairs, you don't know for sure. Um, that's a, a really difficult question. So like the optimal thing you can do is to get. Which I probably wouldn't do this unless it's a huge contract, get a stamped resolution from the board of directors that says this person has authority to sign on behalf of the organization on this contract. Um, When I was in practice, we would do that occasionally because like the biggest contract I did was $250 million with multiple parties. Like that's when the stakes really matter that we know we have an authorized signer. Um, For smaller contracts, I think what you want to do is just use common sense. Like if the person doesn't have some sort of officer type title, like vice president, whatever else, then you do mention like, hey, who has authority to sign on on the organization's behalf? And can you give me an email from somebody that shows you have authority to sign? Um, 
little things you can do are like check websites. Like if they're high enough up in the organization, they have a corporate website and you go look and there's nothing on the website about that, 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 you know, that they are a VP or whatever you want to maybe kind of ask into it. Um, you know, if they have a business card that can help, you just want to make sure, you know, you do kind of some kind of common sense things that you're satisfied. This person does actually have authority to sign on behalf of this organization. Cause I think you told me like if someone like, let's say it was a low level employee or like a new hire or something and they sign off on a document, but you start the project and something goes wrong or you don't get paid or whatever you, you could go and file suit, but then like the CEO of the company could be like, I didn't even know about this project. Like, right. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, that gets into complex issues of agency, but, um, they will definitely have a strong argument, especially if there's just no reason that you should believe that this person has authority to sign on behalf of the organization. You know, you look at their title and it just doesn't indicate that, you know, they're, they're just a teller at a bank and you're doing a video project for a bank. Um, you know, why would you believe that a teller that works there has authority to sign on behalf of a contract for you? Uh, then, yeah, the a valid argument they would have is we as a corporation never agreed to this. So, no, you don't have a contract with us. So you got to make sure whoever signing does have authority from that organization. And, and again, that yeah. usually doesn't end up being a problem if you use common sense. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with that. My next question is going to be um, video rights. This is a huge topic. Mm -hmm. I've already kind of done a podcast on this, but I, talking with you about it, I think would be even more appealing to people. I'll just start this off with a very vague question. Who owns what? Yeah. Um, so the answer to that question is, could be anyone. That, that, that's what people <laughs> need to understand about intellectual property rights is they are an asset that can be sold and can be lent and can be licensed. And so the fact that you authored something doesn't automatically mean you own it. Now, the, the nice thing about copyright law is usually if you authored it, yes, you do own it. So um, the, the default rule under U.S. copyright law is if, if you're the author of it and the contract doesn't expressly say otherwise, then you own the copyright to that material. That's the default rule. Now, the problem is if you've been hired to do something for a company, then clearly they have some rights to use it. And if you haven't spelled out what those rights are, now it's just a huge fight as to, okay, so can they put the commercial I made for them only on local cable TV? Or can they put it on YouTube as well? Can they reproduce it and edit it? Can they license it out to somebody else? Right. So there's just a lot of things that if if all our contract says is I'm going to make you a five minute commercial and deliver it to you in whatever video format, we've got a lot of questions about what you can actually do with that. And so what we want to do in the contract is be very particular about what that client can do. Um, with this material that you're giving them and then what it is that you maintain ownership of. And we can carve that up virtually any way we want, but best practices make it clear. I think, I think I've, that's I've met in the digital world, whereas things can spread so easily and be reproduced. It, absolutely. I, I've met people for two different camps, it seems like, on, on two different extremes. I've met people who feel like I made it, I own it. And I own everything by default, mm -hmm. whether it says it or not. And then I've also met people that have that feel um, like, hey, they hired me to make this project. They own everything like it's all theirs. And I feel like at the end of the day, 
that's not good enough. Like you, it, like that's just how you yeah. feel about it. You, and this right. goes back to our very first point that contracts preserve relationships. I think mm-hmm. you have to spell it out. And I think in my opinion, it needs to be very easy to understand. It can't be vague. Like I've seen word yeah. for hire contracts that just say anything that's created. Well, what is anything that's created? Is it mm-hmm. the final product? Is it the raw material plus the final product? What if I take a behind the scenes picture for my own self, but do you own that too? Cause I shot it on your time. I think right. if you don't spell that out, then it could create so much gray area and so many problems down the road. And yes, you're absolutely right. And, and what I've, you know, you and I together have tried to do with your contracts. And I'm sure Again, as you mentioned before, we'll figure out better ways to do it as we go on is I, I think you want it to be readable and clear, both for your sake and for the client. That's one thing that um, so like when I started doing contract with you. I did go Google, you know, kind of video contracts, get an idea of what they look like. And I found most of them are just um, labyrinthine intellectual property provisions that are really hard to read and understand. And the problem with that is neither party is certain what's going on. Uh, because a lot of times people don't think about what's in there. They just get a boilerplate term and shove it in and neither party can fully understand it. Some of what's in there is not relevant. Um, and, and that just leads to more disputes and it's not good for the client and it's not good for you. So I think we want to try to spell it out in fairly commonsensical but precise terms and then be as specific as we can be and try to think of virtually every eventuality. But then also this, this may seem contradictory. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. Like at some point, you got to enter into a contract. And are there things that you and I haven't thought of in a contract that are going to arise? Absolutely. Already has. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you can do your best uh, and you can try to cover virtually everything. And, and then you got to move forward as a business person. So so don't let that paralyze you. But, yeah, you, you want to be thorough. Um, and again, try to be clear. You know, I try to think of I grew up around working class people. Everything I try to draft, I try to do in a way that it's it's intellectually rigorous and I'm using the right legal terms, but we try to spell it out in a way a normal working person can understand. Um, I think that's better than having some confusing contract that the other party's not going to understand unless a lawyer is looking at it with them. Would you say that raw footage or raw audio that's, that a company makes for a project, would you define that as intellectual property or not? Yes. Yeah. So that's certainly intellectual property. So copyright covers anything that is a work of authorship fixed in a tangible medium. So copyright law is you know, very, very broad about what it can cover. And, and that's what you have to think about with the IP rights is you're producing a lot of intellectual property along the way. Like you're saying, you know, raw footage, um, you know, some of that's going to end up on the cutting room floor and not go into the final product that this person's paid for. But is it still useful to you? Perhaps, right? That may be good filler video for somebody else's commercial. Absolutely. Um, You you may have a landscape or something in there. And again, the default rule is that you do own that as the author. But you might have a client who doesn't understand that and doesn't think it's true and will argue that we actually agreed otherwise or whatever. So the clearest thing to do is then spell that out, that all you have is a license to use the finished product that I deliver to you and you can use it in the following ways. Uh, And that may be anyway, like you may be perfectly content to say, I don't care if you put it on YouTube. I don't care if you chop it up and re-edit it yourself. I don't, I don't care, but that finished product is the only thing you own. And then you can do whatever you want to with it. Any other, you know, raw basic footage belongs to me and you, you agree to that. 
Um, but you just want to spell those things out. And I do think that I do think that's fair because <clears throat> I think that it is your intellectual property and it's valuable. And I was listening to a podcast recently. It was a, a podcast fe- a video podcast featuring a, a, an attorney who's in a different state, um, and she mentioned something really interesting. She said that because it's your intellectual property, a lot of video companies see that as, as a different value, a different asset. So if you're purchasing a video product and the company also wants your intellectual property, the raw content, that, that that's valuable enough where maybe you could give it to them, but you have to put a monetary value to it because it mm-hmm. is a different, it's a different asset. And I think it's important. I, I guess my point I want to make to people listening to this is <clears throat> to value even to value the raw content, because even if it is on the cutting room floor, like you say, there's still value there. You could sell it as stock footage. You could, I'm doing a video for a company right now that's using video from other companies that that I've shot footage from that's leftover content. And I would not be able to do this project if I did not retain the rights to that, to that content. It doesn't mean that I'm not willing to sell it to someone else, Mm -hmm. but I just think it's important that people understand that it is intellectual property and it is valuable. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, and we were talking about this a bit before. <clears throat> a lot of that is just taking the time and being able to explain to the client why this matters. Uh, you got to understand that most yeah. people that are hiring you don't deal with intellectual property on a regular basis unless they're in an intellectual property based business. So in their mind, they're just thinking, hey, this person's trying to take advantage of me. I'm paying them to shoot video. Every single bit of video they shoot is mine and they don't understand why you'd want to keep it. Um, so I've always found to get a lot of mileage out of explaining that why and that they understand why it has value to me and not to you, or at least not the same amount of value. And then I think another important thing to explain is artistic integrity uh, yeah. that a lot of us, me included, that aren't artists don't get until they work with artists. And I've, I've learned some of this working with you is if they take footage that you've shot in a certain resolution and hack it up in a way that it looks terrible and people know you shot it, that can hurt your reputation. If they put it online in a resolution that doesn't look good, such that people are going to see something you created in a way that's not how you intended it to be seen, that can be injurious to your reputation. Um, I know photographers that comes up with a lot, but some photographers have the mindset, like you mentioned, uh, and they tend to be amateurs. Hey, I'm going to take a bunch of pictures and then I'm going to put them on a flash disk and give them to you and you do whatever you want to with them. I'm signing over all intellectual property rights. Other photographers I know, and again, they tend to be better ones that that demand higher prices, say, I'm going to give you a certain number of photos that you have a license to look at and you can distribute in these certain ways. If you want prints, you have to come to me and order prints so I can ensure that they're printed off well and the people that see my work on your wall know what I'm capable of. Because if you go down to Walmart or Kinko's and get this thing printed off on crap paper, it's going to look like garbage. (laughs) And I don't want my name on that. I don't don't want people coming to your house and saying, who took those pictures? Uh, and then you tell them. Um, and those of us that aren't in creative fields don't fully understand that reputational value and how important it is. It goes back to what you said at the very beginning of the podcast when you said that people don't, like a lot of clients most of the time don't understand the complexity of your business. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so like like you said, like a lot of a lot of customers would not even understand, would not even think about that. But at the end of the day, like they hired like let's say a client hires me, they hire me because they like my work. They're not hiring me because they don't like my work. <clears throat> if they if they took the raw footage, for example, and they made something that didn't look bad, then the next client may not hire me because of that. And so, yeah. it, it, but it's just something that most people would never think about. Um, mm-hmm. I also think it's important too that um, that if like if if a videographer 
or a video production company does a, a video for a client that they spell out in the contract that they can, like if they want the ability to 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 share that final video, I think they need to spell that out too because I could also see a situation, let's just say, this is never going to happen for me probably, but let's just say I did a halftime Super Bowl commercial that's going to be played at halftime of the Super Bowl and it's some huge thing that Apple paid me to do. Yeah. I know for a fact Apple's not going to want me to throw that up on my website before the Super Bowl. In right. fact, they may not want that on my website for two years. Mm-hmm. And I understand that because that, that's that's what they're paying for is to put it up there at, on, on, at that point in time. So I think yeah. it's important that in your contract, you also spell that out and not just assume that you just have the right to throw something on, you know, on your gallery right away, because a lot of clients may not want that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing. And I know we've addressed some <clears throat> in your contracts is uh, making it clear that it says, I'm giving you this license to do this with the final product. I maintain um, the rights to do the following things with it, that your license is not exclusive and then spell out what those are. Um, you know, in, in most clients, they're not going to be an Apple with a Super Bowl commercial. It's not right. a big deal. You know, if you're saying, hey, I want to be able to submit this to this industry awards thing, because I think it's great work. I mean, oh, cool. Awesome. That's more advertisement for us. We want 100%. more people to see this. I want to put it on my website. But when you have that client that has a specific business reason where they don't want that, Again, that's something to maintain that relationship. Let's spell it out now, understand it, understand why everybody knows the why before I go out and do it. And then they're just like, why in the world did you do this? You don't, you know, there are some things you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah, you leak <laughs> the Apple commercial before the Super Bowl. Well, now you have destroyed a ton of marketing value for them. Absolutely. Um, and so you you want to make those things really, really clear and just, again, to the extent you can, reason through those and plan them out. Yeah. And I think some of that too, just comes back to ethics as well. Like I have a, I have a client I'm working with. It's, it's a, a, one of my bigger projects of the year and I've already completed some of the products, but I have not put them online, even though I have the right to just because uh, I know that they are saving all of the content until their new websites del- is released on January one. And so I don't want to undermine them and go ahead and put it online because what if some of their potential customers see it before their new website's out? So I think, yeah, ethically, just because yeah. it's something is in contract, you still have to have good ethics too. Yeah. Yeah. Never forget the value of, of communication. You know, some people in, in some contexts, this is true, but the old adage of it's um, easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sure, but but in business relationships, relationships, I would say usually asking permission first is better. Yeah, develop a good good relationship and just call and say, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing X. I don't think that should be a problem with you, but I want to check with you first. Yeah. Uh, the client's almost always going to appreciate that, um, and then it just maintains good working relationships. Some of those things are hard to repair once you've messed them up. Oh yeah, I totally agree. I know I burned a couple of relationships early on in my career and man, it is, I'll tell you what, it's a lot easier to, to keep your clients than it is to find new ones in my experience. Mm, um, absolutely. Yeah. The, the next thing I want to ask you about is video release forms. I think this is a common question that people have because there's, it's kind of vague, but let's just say I was doing a, a, a shoot for, um, let's say it was for the department of tourism here in New Braunfels where I live. And let's say I, I was out on the river and that, cause this actually recently happened where I got hired to go to the river and get Ooh. shots for, um, uh, marketing the different rivers in my area. Well, I'm filming tubers. I'm filming people fly fishing, but I can't go out in the river and ask them to sign a video release form. They're like, so how does that work with people, but, and, and not just people, but also like public buildings. Like what if, 
What if there's a bank in the background of my video? Is that going to be a problem if I don't have permission from the bank or a logo? So like, how does, how does that work? How do people work through that? Yeah. So, um, and I actually had to research this some when, when you and I were dealing with this. Um, so kind of, it can vary quite a bit by state, but kind of some general guidelines is if you're going to get sued by somebody for them using your likeness, they're going to sue in a tort called invasion of privacy. In most states, um, they're only going to have a cause of action if you are using their likeness for your own commercial benefit. And usually, so that means very specifically um, taking them, like, like if you happen to catch a video of LeBron James in public and then go out and say like, LeBron James endorses Rustic River Media, you got a huge problems. So it's usually like a specific pecuniary benefit. Um, in general, and we're talking about generalities here, but when people are walking around out in public, we say they don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy that their image can't be captured, right? Like, you know, there are cameras all around, you're in public. So if it's people milling around in the background, you know, people walking around and stuff, there's no way you can go capture all of those people's signatures, as you were mentioning. And if they're just being used in footage of people enjoying the river or whatever, they're not going to have a tort for a violation of their privacy rights because they're just out in public and got caught in video. Um, best practice is even if it's not absolutely legally necessary, just to cut off any claims is if let, let's say you're shooting footage where people are going to be interviewed. You know, somebody hires you to come shoot a video and we're going to have a guy in the public square in Austin interviewing people about different things and it's going to be on TV. Get them to sign off that they're OK with being on TV may not be absolutely legally necessary, but you definitely just want to take the time to have them sign it rather than potentially get sued later. And, and is that partially say, because you're like featuring them? Yes. Yeah, because then they're being featured. You have the opportunity to talk to them. Um, that that's going to be you have issues of um you know if let's say it's over a matter of public interest type thing somebody may be suing over defamation or something or if you paint them in a false light they look like a crazy person based on what they said again under the first amendment they're probably not going to have much of a lawsuit but my own risk management strategy is lawsuits are expensive i would rather <laughs> not have them than have them and win them right and i think that's 100%. how most people feel so where you can get those kind of signatures, it's worthwhile. Um, you know, we've we've done before where, and again, this isn't absolutely legally necessary, but it helps. Like if it's a big event, you know, you're going to be filming, put up signs around the exterior that were just, you know, real small kind of one pagers that filming is going to be occurring here for whatever. By entering this area, you acknowledge that you're able to be filmed and, you know, that that film might be put on public media. Um, yeah, don't like stadiums, don't they? Like if you go to like a football game, for example, isn't that kind mm -hmm. of accepted? Usually, yeah, usually if you look around, you're going to see that kind of stuff. And you get, even though it's not absolutely necessary, and sometimes it'll be on tickets. Like if you mm -hmm. buy a ticket to a big event, it's, it might say somewhere in there if you read it. Uh, or maybe on the website when you bought the ticket that you um, are waiving any rights to invasion of privacy you have if you end up in a concert video or something. And so belts and suspenders, right? You would rather try to handle those things as well as you can. Um, now, one thing kind of along those rights that would be good to mention in a contract is, let's say you're filming a video for a company that's going to have employees in the video, right? You know, um, good to have waivers from them of any privacy rights that you understand you're going to be featured in this video and everything else. And then I would also put in the omnibus contract 
that it expressly says you're maintaining the rights to like raw footage and to, um, you know, distribute this in other areas and that, you know, any employees that are featured hereby waive any invasion of privacy rights or cause of action they might have related to their likeness being shared publicly. And then have their so that way, if you use that stock footage and something else for some reason, which would probably be rare, but you know, if for some reason you did need to, that employee can't come back later and complain about it. So best practices, um, if you can get it, and if you yeah. if you can't, then just mm-hmm. probably not worry about it unless yeah. unless you're not unless you're featuring them, for example. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. When they're featured, that's where it's more important. Yeah, again, the law, fortunately, in most things, is fairly commonsensical. Like there's a recognition that the First Amendment has to allow people to film in public places. And if you're out in public and you, you show up on the news or something, you, you can't sue or in somebody's commercial. You can't sue sure. That. You know, um, what another interesting point to that is uh, uh, sometimes you'll, you'll watch like a movie and someone will be clearly using an Apple computer, but you can't see that it's an Apple computer. Yeah. Maybe they have it like taped off or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you could watch a documentary Mm-hmm. And you can clearly tell they're using an Apple computer. Why do you think that is? And like, what's the difference there? That, that's a great question. So that has to do typically with just making money off of advertisers. So I talk about this with students when we cover trademark law. Um, so what trademark law covers, which covers logos like that, is it covers, um, it, it prevents other businesses from using your logo in a way that would create a likelihood of confusion. So like I on the camera can see I have a rogue fitness shirt on. Um, you know, if this appears in the podcast, that's not violating rogue's copyright in any way um, because you're not out manufacturing fitness equipment and putting a name on it that's similar to theirs or anything else. So trademark rights don't keep you. Yeah, you have a North Face shirt on. They can't sue you over this from your logo appearing in anything. The reason it typically blurred out like in movies and reality shows is it's because of paid advertisement. Uh, when they put that movie out, product placement, we call it, or when they put out that reality show, if they have a um, character in there that's very popular that almost always uses Apple computers, they might go to Apple and say, hey, we can make sure Apple computers are in every scene if you're willing to pay us. And then if Apple says, yeah, no, thanks, <laughs> then they're probably going to blur that out just to try to keep Apple from getting any free sort of free advertisement. Or yeah. it could be that Microsoft agreed to pay them for Microsoft product placement. And part of that agreement says you won't feature an Apple logo anywhere. And so then you have to blur those out. So that's that's not an intellectual property law thing. Typically, it's a um, monetary thing where they're trying to make money off of advertisers. Yeah, I know I've ran into that. There, I do. Um, so when you go to the movies and you see like pre-roll ads before the movie starts, mm-hmm. I get hired quite a bit to do pre-roll commercials for companies. And I did one for Farmers Insurance once. We done we did like five, and on the fourth one, I remember there was um, I think it was a Coke machine in the background, but the movie theater, the theaters that it was going to be played in in the local Austin area, had a deal with Pepsi. And okay. so we had to go in and reshoot one of those scenes to not have Coke in the background because of the Pepsi thing. And no one yeah. told us that up front. We didn't know until we sent it to the to uh, the advertising agency. And they're like, oh, man, we, we caught this right before it, it went on to the theaters. We can't have it. And mm-hmm. so I do think, like, I, I've ran into that before. But you're saying that, like, outside of that, if someone's doing a, a commercial shoot for, like, I'm getting ready to, to, do, to do another project for, for Stephen F. Austin. Um, and if we have an Apple computer in the background, 
that's not a problem. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Unless Stephen F. Austin has some contract with Microsoft, with Microsoft. that yeah. says you'll make sure, um, you know, the <laughs> only thing I could, where I could see that coming up with a university is probably in athletics. You know, most universities have yep. athletics contracts with either Nike or Under Armour or Adidas. Yep. They might have some provision in there. And that'd be a good thing to ask that university if you're shooting with them. Like, hey, will we will you get in trouble if there's a Nike logo in any scene? Because then we can make sure if somebody has a Nike shirt on, have them change it because that's going to be a lot easier to handle now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's not an intellectual property, illegal thing. It's their contracts and their monetary relationships issue. So speaking of contracts and stuff, what about film permits? You and I have had some conversations about film permits, mm-hmm. specifically the time I, I think about is when I went to Las Vegas to do a doc project only to find out that we were going to be filming on Bureau of Land Management property without a film film permit. Who who is responsible in that in that situation? Because this is a this is a very big problem we ran into. Yeah. So if the contract doesn't say who is responsible, who knows? You're, you're just <laughs> going to have a big dispute over it. Everybody's going to be pointing fingers, and I honestly have no idea how a court would come down on that because that's just such a vague, I mean, they might say, hey, filmer, you're the one that's supposed to have more expertise. You should have thought of this because it's a permit that's required for you to carry out your job. They, they may say it's customer, who knows? So um, yeah, the the way to fix that is spell it out. Yeah, make yep. sure it's, it expressly says in there whose responsibility it is to get permits. If you're going to do that for them, great. You know, that's a value add. Maybe you want to charge more for it. Maybe you don't. That's a monetary decision you need to make based upon your own time. Um, and then, you know, an issue we confront in your contracts is spell out what happens if you show up and they haven't honored their obligation to get those permits, because you're going to be out some money if you travel and show up to a job and they're like, oh, yeah, we didn't do that. Um, you know, make sure it's clear that, you know, there's something you can point to in the contract that says, OK, then we're going to have to come back out and you have to pay for our airfare. Um, and, and this deposit's gone because I can't eat $2,000 of plane tickets or whatever. So, yeah, those are just important things to make sure are very clearly spelled out in the contract what happens. And, you know, and what I would do as well is the fact that you have it in a contract, a lot of people don't read contracts closely. Don't assume that the client knows it, right? And, and if you have that spelled out in your contract and you show up for a job and can't film and then have to go home and come back out, that's not some win, even if the client paid for it. That's just a waste of everybody's time. Yep. So I would say, even if you don't want to have to do it, good business practice would be call before, uh, you know, well enough in advance and say, hey, I just want to make sure because a lot of clients forget this. Have you checked to make sure there's not any permits? Let's talk about where you're filming and I can, you know, help you if, um, or maybe not help you do it, but tell you where to go if you need to get a film permit or whatever. Because, yeah, you don't want to be caught with your pants down on that. Which we were. I, I think in our contract, we had said who was responsible. And and just and you can decide. Like, it's up to the, the, the company or the sure. videographer. Yeah. We chose to go to put it on the client to make it, them responsible. But we did offer, like, they can ask us to to look into it and to apply for like an hourly fee, an hourly rate. Um, so we do give them the option because, and that's fair because it is time. Like you have to yeah. make the phone calls and apply and all that stuff. But where, where I got caught with my pants down was we didn't have anything that spelled out what happens if the client's like, yeah, I'll take care of it. But then you show up and it wasn't taken care of. And that mm-hmm. is what we ran into. And we out, well, yeah, like you said, we had spent all the money on plane tickets and stuff. And here we are in Las Vegas and now we don't have the right film permit. What do you do? Mm-hmm. 
And we were able to navigate through that. But the easiest thing is to just figure it out ahead of time and then call and double check, like just make sure, because like you said, it's not a win for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And really, you know, something I just learned along the way in practice is never underestimate people's abilities to enter into contracts and not read them. Um, So, you know, do not assume that your client has read everything that's in there. And so if there's something, especially if their behavior indicates to you that maybe they don't get what's going on, you know, I would say you can do it politely, but I wouldn't hesitate to, you know, call or email and be like, Hey, I just want to make sure we're on the same page that you got to make sure you do this, you know, before we come film. Yeah. Cause I think most of my clients don't read. They check the box that says that they read it, but I know after talking to them, a lot of them have never read it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not your fault. I mean, you can only do what you can do, but um, Mm -hmm. it's good. It's good practice. Like you said, just to check. What about, um, what about, subjectivity so video is a subjective business this was something we recently talked about um, yeah t- let, let's dive into that a little bit if you don't mind yeah so um w- what this is getting at is an issue we call contract performance so there are some contracts that are really really easy to determine whether the party's performed or not if i'm selling you my watch for a hundred bucks you know for certain whether i gave you the watch and it's in working order and you paid me the hundred dollars pretty easy to determine this was performed then there are other contracts and videography is one of them on kind of the other far end where determining whether performance was adequate is pretty much completely subjective, right? So there's going to be some objective indicators. You can agree that the um, you know video is going to be in 4K resolution or whatever. And then you guys that do video are probably thinking this guy didn't know what he's talking about. Which is no, I mean, no, in 4K, that's okay. good. That's good. I, I'm mentioning <laughs> random things I've happened to see in videos, <laughs> which may mean nothing. But, you know, it's going to be two and a half minutes long yeah. um, available in these formats to you, whatever. There's some objective measurements. But then there's that subjective piece of does it accomplish the branding goal that I want? Yep. Do, does, it, does it look good? Is this what I was aiming for? And Am you I happy with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just That's what it comes down to. Are you happy? And so you may produce something that you think is fantastic. And they look at it and say, wow, this really isn't the vision we were looking for. I don't want to pay for this. Um, and so now you're stuck. I mean, and there's different ways we can handle that. Like if you have the bargaining power, you can put in a contract, whatever I produce for you, if it meets these requirements, it's yours. And if you don't like it too bad. Um, and if that's what you agreed to, a court will enforce that. Now, unless you're really, really well-known videographer and that client's just begging to have you, you probably don't have that sort of power. And then we can go to the complete other side, which is the client has absolute, we call them personal satisfaction clauses, carte blanche to say, hate it, not paying for it. Then it doesn't matter that you spent a hundred hours on it. They don't have to pay for it. Um, is there a perfect way to resolve that? No. Uh, I mean, really kind of the best you can do is spell out as many objective indicators as you can. Um, and I'm glad I don't think you mind me saying, well, we kind of ended up was in the middle with the clause that says you get this many edits. Um, and then both parties will behave reasonably when determining w- whether or not the final product is adequate and just acknowledge there's some subjectivity to it. Um, and often, and I think we good. put, I think we put in the contract too, that if we had shown, you said this, if we had shown them prior works, yes. examples similar right. to what we're delivering, because if, if I handle something, if I send in something that's just horrible and it looks nothing like what I've done yeah. in the past, then they could say, Josh, that that's not like what you've shown us. But if it's like, 
if it's anywhere even remotely similar, then what can they argue at that point? And so I think we put that in there. Yeah, we did. Yeah, thanks for that reminder. We did. We used pr previous work, and it says that the, the clients acknowledge that he has um, seen previous work by Rustic River Media, and that the finished product will be yeah in, in keeping with that quality of work, and that really helps. Um, you know that the upshot is I think, and you can tell me from living this every day, most people are good people. They're not yeah. going to just arbitrarily to try to pull it over on you. Just be like, nah, don't like it. Don't want it. Um, but what can happen is people in good faith just have kind of different ideas about what that finished product should look like. So I think also just using some wisdom of having check marks in there, having frequent conversations, show them some footage before you get too deep in it. Hey, is this what we're looking for? Anything that doesn't seem clear, hash it out during that process so we know. Um, yeah, you don't want to spring a surprise on them because, yeah, creative endeavors are just an inherently subjective thing and they get kind of touchy in contracts. Yeah, and I, I think I think it's just important to bring that up because I very rarely have ran into that, but there has been a time or two where someone's mm -hmm. like, I just don't want to pay for it. And you might run into that. It's possible. Yeah. And, and if you can say, look, like I don't, like whether you like it or not, like I thought it looked good and it looks similar to what I've done in the past. And mm -hmm. I did everything like contractually, like that, like you said, I hit the resolution and I gave it to you in the format. I said to the time length, I said, you have to pay for it. Yeah. And, and you might try to work with them. I think this is important too. I think you said something, you have something in my contract that says like, we will be reasonable. Like I'll try my best to, to resolve mm -hmm. it. But if they're just like, Meh, I just don't want to pay for it. And yeah, at some point you have to be able to, 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 to stick up for yourself. So I think yeah. it's important just to have a little clause or something in there that just kind of says like both parties understand it's, mm -hmm. it's subjective. Yeah. One big safeguard you can have is, and I think this has to vary by client and based upon their financial ability. Like if it's a, what I would guess is if somebody welches on paying you at the end, the primary motivator is probably going to be financial. Yeah. Where, you know, they're a business, they're starting off, they want to use you to make a commercial for marketing. They think this is going to help their business. By the time the finished product gets out, their business is not flourishing how they like. Yeah. And they just kind of can't afford to pay you. And so then what they use as an excuse is, man, this isn't good enough. I'm sorry. This isn't what we agreed to. I can't pay you for this. Um, and if you don't have that spelled out in the contract, you might have some issues, even if you do have it spelled out. I mean, do you really want to go to with in a lawsuit over this person, there's a good chance they can't pay you. So if you have any doubts over the ability of a client to pay, a deposit can work wonders there. Um, th that you require them to pay some upfront uh, and it's included in the purchase price, but then you expressly spell out, if you do not pay for the finished product, that you know this, this deposit's non-refundable. And then at least if that deposit's big enough that it's gonna cover your expenses, you're not just taking a shellacking on the deal. Um, now, you may have some clients that are, you know, you're shooting for Walmart or something. You're not too concerned about having a big deposit with them because they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Smaller <laughs> business, that that would be a concern of mine. Do you think deposits are... Um... Do you think deposits are something that you would recommend? I always have done them, but do, do you recommend them for most people? I would. Yeah, because um, especially with smaller businesses, man, I love this about entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs are risk takers and gutsy. And a lot of times they're flying by the seat of their pants. <laughs> and in my experience in working with them, they're notorious for um, what ready, shoot, aim. I guess I would say it's just like, you know what? It sounds like a good idea to have a commercial. Let's do it. 
And without really even thinking if they can pay for it, they're like, yeah, you bet. This guy's videos look great. We're hiring him. We're going for it. And then by the time it's come due, they're like, oh, crap, I don't, I don't have money. Or now this doesn't fit my purposes or whatever. And then they're trying to figure out a way to get out of it. Um, and so, yeah, I think a deposit can be make sure they're serious, you know, if they're willing to put it down, um, you know, and if they say something like, you know, I'm not going to put down any money until I see a finished product. I would submit that's probably a client you don't want to deal with. Yeah, that's a red um, flag to me. Yeah. And you want to be ready to explain why you need a deposit. Again, it's not that I don't trust you or anything else. It's just I'm a small business owner, too. I'm going to have expenses going into yeah. this. I've got to make sure my guys get paid. This is going to take five to six months to do three months, however long it's going to take. Yep. Um, you know, and I think most people with goodwill would, would understand that. And if they're not willing to do that, then I would have some questions about their ability to pay for the project. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I got an argument with another video production company one time because they they did not like they thought that asking for a deposit was really rude. And and I get like you're 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 trying to be nice to your clients, but at the same time, like there is upfront cost. There is upfront mm -hmm. risk. Even yeah. if it's even if it's your best friend, at the end of the day, like you, to me, even if you sign a contract, that still doesn't mean it a whole lot to me. I yeah. think when money changes hands is when things, to me, when things are, are starting to get a little more serious. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You kind of have to understand that client doesn't really have any skin in the game of following through with you. Uh, because they, you know, let's say it's a $5,000 contract, 10000 That'd be a big contract in my mind. Um, yeah, me too. But is that big enough that you're going to go sue them for breach of contract over? You know, probably not. If you asked me about that, I'd be honest with you and say, in all honesty, you'll probably pay an attorney more than that. Uh, and I would hate to say just eat it, but I think you probably ought to eat it from a financial standpoint because it's not going to be worth it to sue under. You're really getting into a $50,000, $150,000 contract a lot of times before it makes sense to go through the mess of a lawsuit over. I, 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 do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, because I, I just have a couple more questions because all this is really great. My, my next one is what it, along those lines, like if you have someone, let's say I, I ran into this. I had a client that I had been working with since the beginning of my career. We never had a contract to start with because I didn't have contracts earlier, earlier in my career. But I started to realize at some point, like, man, we've never had a contract. Should we have one? Do you think, like, what advice do you have for someone who's been working with someone for a long time? They listen to this podcast and they're like, man, you're right. I should have contracts. Mm -hmm. Should they approach the client that they're already working with and ask them one for now? Or should they just wait until they have a new, a new client to start? You know, I would say it probably depends upon the scope of projects you're doing for that client, how big they are. Again, kind of what we were talking about before, uh, you know, if the series of projects you're doing for them are small enough, it's not going to be the end of the world if um, you don't get paid and, and and you know the client and, you know, it might give them a little bit of heartburn to, to kind of change course on that now, then, you know, it, it makes good business sense to be like, you know what, we'll, we'll continue the way we're doing it. Now, if, if it's a client where you're, you're doing, you know, perennial big projects with them, me personally, I would have no heartburn going to them and saying, hey, I've been doing this for longer. I've realized that, you know, it makes more sense to have written contracts. So I know everything that's spelled out with all of my clients. Um, you know, th this contract that I'm bringing you just outlines our relationship exact way as it's always been. Nothing's going to change. But we do, you know, going forward need to have a written contract that just spells out all of these various issues. Um, you know, and, and they might have a little bit of an issue like that at first. They might not. 
you know, it, there's a good chance if it's a reasonably sized business where they say, yeah, we were kind of thinking the same thing or, um, yeah, I was kind of wondering why you didn't <laughs> have a written contract, you know, because yeah. usually you don't get water brought to your water cooler in the office without there being some sort of written contract there. So I don't think that's strange to most people. Um, a lot of times, I don't know if you run into this, but if you are doing much of anything for a company that's audited and you don't have a written contract, there's a good chance they're going to come to you and say, our auditor said we need to have some sort of written contract that spells out who you are and what you're doing. Because they're going to be scared that, oh, they're just funneling money to some person <laughs> and calling it videography work um, so that they want to see some evidence that there's an actual relationship there and work's getting done. Um, so if it gets to very much of a scale with a big client, I think it's going to be a necessity. But I think if you can explain the reason why, I wouldn't be too nervous about going back to a client that you've been doing yeah. check deals with and um, having a written contract. One, one of the one of the comments you made actually is what happened. So um the client I was thinking of, I did approach them eventually and was like, hey, we should probably, like you said, we should probably have had a contract. I'm mm -hmm. been doing this longer now and I realized we should have done that. And I, the client literally said what you said. He said, yeah, I was kind of wondering why we never had one. And he was yeah. happy to have one because uh, a lot of people think like, oh, the contract is just for me. But no, it's really for both parties. Right. Because it, it protects the client too, because it's mm -hmm. outlining what they're going to get. And if I give them one thing, but I was supposed to give them six things, you know, that it protects them from that. And so I, I have no heartburn going to an old client. I wouldn't have any in asking them to, to have one because I think that they actually might appreciate it. Yeah, no, that, that's been my experience as well. I, I don't think most people are um, too nervous about doing written contracts. Do you think that people should to should form an LLC even if they're a freelancer? I know we I've got I've got several contractors that I work with now and I've been an LLC for like 7 years. I think you helped me you helped me develop mm -hmm. my LLC. Um do you think that that's a good move for most people? It is. Um so here's the big consideration with an LLC. Um and a corporation or any sort of entity in general. It gives you liability protection, mm -hmm. right? And that's what most people think, but then they don't have a full and complete understanding of what that means. And so what liability protection means is not that no one can ever sue you as a person uh, again for anything. It, it doesn't work that way. What it, There's a couple of situations where it really matters. So one is in contracts, right? If you're entering into contracts in the name of your LLC um, and not in your own personal name, if there's a contract dispute and they sue over that, then they're going to only be able to sue your LLC. And then the assets they're going to be able to get at are limited to those assets that are in your LLC. So that's an important asset protection thing if you're doing contracts of any size, because what you don't want is for a contract to go sour, you end up having to pay $100,000 in damages and they can get your personal assets, meaning like your savings account, your checking account, um, your house will probably be homestead protection, but any other property that you have. And that's a very real reality if you enter into that contract in person. Um, so the contractual protection from having an entity, whether it's an LLC, an LLP, a corporation, whatever works best for you is important. The other place where it's important is once you have employees. So if you don't have employees, you don't get much what we call tort liability protection. So a tort would be uh, running your car into somebody, right? Like any sort of private wrong you commit that hurts someone and they can sue you for it. So... If you are out on a job driving around, um, you know, doing videography for your company and you get in a car wreck, 
they're always going to be able to sue you in person because you're the person that did the car wreck. So the fact you, you can't stand behind a shield and say, but I was operating for my LLC at the time. You can't get my personal assets. They're going to be able to get your personal assets and the LLC's assets because <laughs> you were acting on behalf of the LLC at the point. Now, once you have employees, that all changes. So let's say now you have videographers working under your company and you're spending more time in client development and handling back office stuff and they're out on a job driving the truck around and they get in a wreck. Now they can't get it. You Milligan's personal assets. They can get it. The personal assets of that videographer, which they probably don't want because he doesn't have any <laughs> and your LLCs and whatever insurance the LLC has, they can't get at your personal assets. So once you, because have you aren't the operator. Correct. Yeah. You didn't personally commit the tort. So once you have employees working for you, it's really important to have them in an entity because never underestimate the dumb things an employee might do. Right? <laughs> I mean, you think about having a videographer out on a multi-day shoot, um, might they drink at night and then go drive your company truck around? Good, good chance, right, that they may do that. Uh, and so that's where having an entity of some kind is pretty important just for protecting your personal assets. Yeah, I think there is a misconception that people have that once you have an LLC, you are completely protected. Personally. Yeah, I encounter that with students all the time. Yeah, 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 and I think I think it is important to understand that um, it it is a great layer of protection, but it is not it is not like all encompassing. Yeah. So, like for example, I don't practice law under an LLC structure of any kind because I don't have partners. It's just me doing it individually. Um, I don't have any employees that work under me. And so if I screw up legal work for you and you decide to sue me, it wouldn't matter if I had an LLC or not. I'm the attorney that screwed up the legal work. You can always sue me personally. Now, if I had a firm and I had other attorneys working with me, I would definitely have an LLC or an LLP because what I don't want is another attorney screws up legal work and then they can come sue me personally. And, and that could happen if I don't have an entity structure. So for the individual freelancer, do you think it's worth them to still have an LLC? Um. They're so cheap to set up now, probably. Um, I mean, if you're doing nothing but small contracts, it, it's not an absolute necessity. Because again, even if you have a breach of contract suit, the damages are going to be limited such that I, I wouldn't be too worried about there being you know massive contract damages. But if you're getting to the point where you're doing large enough um, contracts that it's amounts of liability, you know, 10, 15, 20,000, whatever the number is for you, where you're worried about having to pay that on your own. That's when having an entity starts making sense. Do you think that, is, is there a liability clause that should be in your contract? And on top of that, whether you have an LLC or not, to where like if um, if we're on a set and, and a client falls and breaks their leg, is there yeah. something like that that should be in there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You want to have like a waiver of liability clause of... Um, you know, the, the client agrees to indemnify is the word we use and hold you harmless for any injuries that they might have on set, that sort of thing. Um, what else? We, we approached this not too long ago and we thought of a few categories of liability. And yet you try to think about for whatever you're shooting, the various bad things that might happen that aren't your fault, but that someone might blame you for mm -hmm. and spell out in there that you agree to hold me harmless. I know that things. one of the ones that we've had in there for a long time is that they have ownership or rights for the content that they're providing, like a logo, for example. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's, that's something that we've one. put in there mm -hmm. because if they, they give you if, any footage, they want included in there. Yes. They expressly represent that they own it. It doesn't, it won't infringe on any copyrights and they'll indemnify you if it does. That's a really important one. 
I do think it's important because if if someone comes after you, you could be like, hey, like they provided that for me and they signed this contract and said that they had the rights to use that. Don't look at me, look at them. Yeah, yeah, and think about exactly how that could happen. We talked about before how oftentimes clients don't understand the rights they actually have. So let's say they previously had somebody shoot a commercial for them and they're like, hey, we want you to shoot this footage. And in this part, we really liked splice that in there in the middle. Yeah. Um, and in their mind, they own that. The reality might be they don't or the license that they have expressly says you will not edit this in any way. And then you go put it in and all of a sudden you get a call from the original author that's like, uh, hey, you just violated my copyrights. And so if you have a provision in there that expressly says you you indemnify me if I have any liability from this, which basically means reimburse or you pay for it, that can be very helpful. We're getting to the end. Yeah, thank you for that. We're getting to the end of this um, here. One other question I did have is, is there a time limit that people should give you think on a project? I have a, a customer, for example, that we shot a video for 12 months ago and we still haven't finished it. And it's because they haven't provided the assets to us to finish the project. Should should people have a time limit in their contract? I would say yes. That That's one of those things that a lot of us, me included, when we're drafting a contract, we often don't think of. Um so, yeah, you have a period under a contract to perform it that is a reasonable period before the other party is supposed to be in breach. And what a reasonable period is, is basically whatever a judge or jury decides for the subject matter of that contract. So it's pretty vague. And, yeah, I think that's a really good idea to, to spell out in there, you know, especially if there's something the client has to provide you to get it done. Um, you know, make clear if you don't provide this to me that you you lose your deposit and the contract won't be completed. Um, and then you have up to this date to, to provide that. Um, yeah. And that, that's going to vary by project. But and then you want to make it clear on their side that you will deliver finished product by blah date. Um, that, that there's a, an end date when they should expect a finished product, just so everybody knows when performance is going to be rendered. Yeah, and I think also in our in our contract, well, I don't think I know this. We also have a clause that states how long they have to pay us. Yeah, because and if I had if I had a dollar for the amount of friends I have that own do video for a living, but I haven't been paid in four or five months, mm-hmm. and I don't have that problem because <laughs> we outline yeah. that out in our contract. Yeah, yeah, and and that's a. Uh, I hate that it's like that. I mean, I think that's a common thing. And I would like to think it's it's not just because people are bad people. I think it kind of floats out of their mind. But if, well, I, I mean, think that's truly it. They just get too busy. Yeah. Uh, but there are some people that will just drag their feet on paying as long as they can, unless you really hold their feet to the fire for their own cash flow situation or whatever. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, you do have to have, you know, kind of a, a strong spine and understand that this is how you're providing for your family. And, you know, this is your livelihood. You want to get paid and you need to get paid. Do you have any any last comments or any suggestions or things that people should look for in their contract or that they should do to make sure that they're protected? Or do you have any any advice or any last things that you would suggest? I, there's probably all sorts of things if we thought about <laughs> it long enough. But, um, you know, one thing I would say about, you know, finding an attorney to help you with it. Um, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't Don't be overwhelmed by the attorney. Don't assume that the attorney knows everything. Um, make sure you find someone that just gives you to, to the extent you can a really good feel for this is somebody I want to work with. Um, that seems like they're going to bill me honestly, that every time I call them with a question, they're not going to bill me for it. 
Um, and, and there are still attorneys like that out there because, because I know them. And so, you know, look for maybe a smaller law firm. Um, if you go with one of the really, really big law firms, just the pressures of that environment, they're going to bill you for, you know, every phone call that you call them. But if you can find somebody smaller and local, but still sophisticated and smart, they can help, help you with most of these things. Um, again, don't be afraid to ask questions of that attorney to give them input. And if you have a lawyer that anytime you bring something up to change, they kind of dismiss it or they don't ever want to take your recommendations, I would say go find another one. I mean, trust your own instincts that you know your business. Um, you know, you're hiring that attorney for the expertise and the contract, not, not that they know more about your business than you do, because they almost certainly don't. Um, so exercise, I would say a lot of judgment if you are out there looking for an attorney. I think my closing advice for people would be just to spell things out. I think, I think, um, contracts can be too vague sometimes and you can, it's really easy, especially because you know, and, and it's, this is not even just for video. This could be, you could make hay for a living, but you, you might, you might know the ins and out of your business, but, but your customer probably does not. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I think don't, don't go into, into a project assuming that they know, like assuming that they know like, Hey, the voiceover is not covered. That's extra. You have mm-hmm. to pay for that. Like, don't assume that they know that. I think it's just, in my mind, it's important to spell everything out, make it clear and easy to understand, like you said, so that everybody's on the same page. And yeah. mention it to them when you speak to them because they might not read your contract. And just to save heartburn down the road, make sure that they understand some of those things up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and keep in mind the cost of addressing it now, although it can be kind of burdensome, is almost certainly going to be less than addressing sure. it down the road when there's a problem. I, I I completely agree. Well, I really appreciate you jumping on the podcast. I think this is very useful. For those of you listening, we definitely didn't even cover everything in our contract. I mean, if we went through the whole contract, that would literally have to be a whole another yeah. episode. And it'd be there's really a lot boring of, too. It would be really boring. But these are some, some things I think that people, I know that people have questions about video rights and and release forms and stuff. And so hopefully we provided some good knowledge. I think we provided some knowledge for people to give them some at least food for thought um, when they are getting started in their business. Thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed it. And I've enjoyed working with you. It's been a fun conversation. Well, what's cool is, is in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be up at SFA doing a project for you or yeah. well, for the university. And, yeah. and I, I can't wait to get up there. And um, for anybody listening to this podcast, um, if you're, if you are, are looking, if you're young and you're listening to this and you're looking for a, a great college to go to, I cannot recommend SFA um, en- enough. Axum Jacks. That's right. Yeah. I know <laughs> I love being here. It's a great size university, a great town. And I've heard you guys got some uh, really cool entrepreneurship programs since I've left. We do. Yeah. We recently got a large donation to build something that I, I really wish we would have had when you were here because you were starting a business. You know, now we have some, some infrastructure and some money to uh, with the new entrepreneurship center, some great entrepreneurship professors. We're hoping we can, um, you know, really reach students because we do have quite a few of them that are interested in starting a business and, and get them, you know, off on the right foot in college as to exactly how to do that. I was even told you guys have some new room where, um, and a new program where you, I think they said they brought people in and you like pitched a business to them or something. You pitched something to, to I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, they, um, gosh, and the dean's going to kill me for not remembering the exact <laughs> name of the donor. So I just won't, won't even say, but yeah, we're, I think building out the physical space um, and definitely have some plans for some different, you know, pitch competitions. And, and some of that may have already happened. I don't get involved in the entrepreneurship side a ton. 
But um, yeah, I know we have some physical space we're building out for it. And we've got some pretty big plans that I'm excited about because we do have, and it encourages me as a American citizen, a lot of students who want to start businesses. And I think that's great that that's kind of the, the engine that drives our economy. Absolutely. And I think, I think for people, we're at an age now where I, th- I think more and more people are willing to take a shot at that. Yep. And it's, um, I mean, like with what you're doing with this podcast, it's never been cheaper um, to be able to reach more people. Um, I mean, you can have a global reach like that from anywhere in the country, which is awesome. That, that that wasn't the case when I was in school. Yeah, I think, and this podcast, I counted it the other day. I think we've been listened to in 72 countries so far. Oh, that's awesome. And, and, I, and I've, I haven't put a dollar into it. It's just my time. Yeah. Well, that's not true. I guess I did pay to have the intro made, but <laughs> outside of that. Well, thank you so much again for your time. I really appreciate it. And for anybody listening to this podcast, if, if you have any more questions, go to the Filming with Josh Facebook group, post your questions there. I'll, I'm no attorney, but I will do my best to answer them. And um, thanks again, Justin, for hopping on with us today. Yeah, thanks. I enjoyed it. Likewise. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.